Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be sitting together in the story of the prodigal son. Um, I think it's better titled the parable of the two lost sons um, than just the prodigal son. We, we think of just that one son very often, um, but there's so much more to this parable than that. Now, I think it's important for me to acknowledge, at least right up front, that there are some of you in this room who have heard this text read and preached too many times to count, right? And then there's others of you in here who um, maybe you've heard of it, you've heard some things said about the, the prodigal of the two lost sons, but you haven't taken a deep dive yet. No matter where you fall on that spectrum, all I ask is that you lean in this morning and remain expectant for what God is looking to do and to show us together in this beautiful parable. And the reason I think that it's worthwhile for each and every one of us is because This is one of those teachings from Jesus that you could sit with for hours and hours and hours, meditating upon its many, many, many endless uh, implications and its beauty and really never plumb the depths. And I kind of leaned into that idea a little bit this week as as I prepared. And the image that kept coming to mind for me, and if you bear with me, is, is like a diamond. If you imagine holding a diamond in your hand, right? And there's a source of light somewhere in the room, right? And it shines, and, and the light hits the diamond, and it refracts light into your eyes, and you see beautiful, a wide array of colors and shapes. And you can almost imagine turning that diamond very slowly. And as you do, there's almost an endless number of ways in which that light and that beauty and the profound nature of what's within just this small diamond does to you, and you experience that. And that's kind of, to me, like what this parable is. You could sit with it forever and experience so much of what God has to say and speak to us in and through it as you peel back the layers. And so I want to just say that. I want to put that image in your mind because this morning I hope to just be able to turn that diamond together a little bit this morning, hopefully for just 30 minutes, no longer. Um, So to begin, uh, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. One, as is the intention of any parable— Jesus is seeking to paint a picture of what God is like, what his kingdom is like. That's the aim. And each time that he does this, as he speaks to the crowds, he has a tendency to turn any and all expectations on their head, right? People come to his teachings with expectations about what the kingdom of God is like, and he so often just turns those expectations on their head. And there are many kinds of people listening to this story in Jesus' day from a variety of dispositions and backgrounds, But what is true of everyone hearing the story is that they would have been utterly blown away by this. This wasn't one of those like, thanks for the good word, pastor. I'm going to move on with my day. This was a substantial stick of dynamite in all of their preconceptions about who God was for everyone there, which leads to the second thing that I think we need to acknowledge right up front about this parable. And that is, as I said, this is a story not about just one, but two sons, right? And this is important because I think for many of us, in our, in our minds, we kind of picture that moment of reconciliation between the father and the younger son, and it's a beautiful moment. You cannot overstate just how beautiful of a moment that is. But if we end the story there, if we forget to move on to the elder son, then we, I think we lop off at the knees what God is actually intending to say to us in and through it. At the very beginning of chapter 15, 
Starting in verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Two very different groups, the tax collectors and the sinners. But the Pharisees, that second group, and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? So right from the very get-go, all of a sudden we have a little bit of the context of who Jesus is speaking to in this moment and receiving this teaching. On the one hand, you have the sinners and the tax collectors, the drunkards, the poor, the destitute, those that society deems to be utterly cut off from blessing. And on the other hand, you have the Pharisees, the scribes, the morally upright. This is the group that sees these sinners in exactly the light that their moralism teaches them to. Lost, wicked, cast off. And the way they see themselves, conversely, is upright. The righteous do-gooders, the ones to whom spiritual blessing knows no end because of their adherence to the law. These are the two groups that Jesus is talking to in our story. And so with that in mind, let's start in verse 11 in chapter 15. And let's lean into this together this morning. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So right from the get-go, what do we have? We have an absolutely tragic part one of our story, don't we? We have a family in disarray. There are only two sons in this picture, and one of them, half of those who is set to receive the father's inheritance, is seeking to do something so egregious, so appalling, as to take his share up front and abandon his family. That's what we see. Now, in case there's any doubt, in that culture to do something like this would have been absolutely abominable behavior. This sort of a request would have been akin to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Not only do I opt out of all of my duties as son and to tend to the farm and to eventually take care of you in your old age, not, not only that, but I, I wish you would just go and die already. And if you're confused as to why, there's kind of similarities in how inheritances work between that culture and ours, right? When the parent passes away, the children or the inheritors receive the inheritance, But all that being true, no one with any love or respect for their parents goes to them and says, essentially, hey, yeah, um, when are you going to keel over? Because I could really use a second home right about now, right? I could really take a Tesla any day now. You don't do that, right? You love your parents. You respect your parents, right? And I have four little boys at home. The eldest of my my boys is is four four years old, and my wife and I are just beginning to reckon with the fact that he is just at that point where he can say things in the heat of the moment that really sting, right? His vocabulary is growing. In the heat of the moment, temper's flaring. He's heard the discipline that he's going to receive for whatever thing that he did, and and things tend to come out in that moment, don't they, parents in the room? You know that. So we work through those emotions, and we come out the other end with hugs and reconciliation and maybe some tickles. But even so, it stings, right? It stings to hear those things from your kids. And I know that it's only going to get harder. He's going to grow. His vocabulary is going to grow with him and his ability to articulate his emotions as well. And, but that's all a part of growing up and being human, isn't it? This is different. To hear this from your son, from your child, would be completely different. This younger of the two sons is not four years old. He's not a child. 
To hear these kinds of words from an adult son would be an unthinkable hurt. And the underlying reality is that he doesn't care for his father. He's rejecting that relationship. He doesn't care about his family. He just wants what is coming to him. If that part of the story wasn't shocking enough for Jesus' listeners, how the father reacts would have boggled the mind. It would have utterly boggled the mind. And that culture for a son to debase the honor of the father and bring such a profound shame upon the family in the process. The only rightful way to respond to something like this would be with the back of the hand. Maybe then at least some dignity would be restored. Maybe then this son could come to realize just how grave an error he's made and beg for forgiveness. That's the, that's the, the thought. But that's not how the father responds, is it? Jesus' listeners would have been perplexed to hear that the way the father responds is to grant the request, right? To grant the request. He doesn't beat him. He doesn't tell him off. He doesn't tell him to get out of his estate. He gives him what he asks. Now, given the fact that the the share of his inheritance would have been tied up in a variety of, of investments and assets, the estate itself, this wouldn't have been an easy process, would it? And so at the end of verse 12, it tells us that the father divides up the property and the assets, and he gives it to the son, who within a matter of days manages to sell all of it, probably at a steep discount in order to liquidate it quickly, and he skips town. What a tragic story, right? What a tragic first part to our story. It's an unmitigated disaster. Now, for understandable reasons, Jesus doesn't feel the need in the next part of our story to, to really share many of the details. All we know is that after converting his share of the inheritance into cash, he sets off into the sunset and he just YOLOs it up. He just lives his, li- his best life right now. I mean, this guy has no sense of budget. He isn't thinking about tomorrow. And maybe it kind of surprises some of the younger people in the room to, to think, man, all of that money, how could you blow that so quickly? I'm in my late 20s right now, and I've realized, I've come to find out, that the, the years of the, the 20s in somebody's life, either the, the whole of the 10 years or somewhere in there, is that moment where a person discovers just how quickly money goes, <laughs> right? Like when you're young, $1,000 feels like a million dollars. Like think about all the things I could buy with 1000 bucks, right? But now $1,000, if I get $1,000, I have four kids and we need groceries and gas for the car, it's going to be gone by late next week, right? Like that's just the reality. And so it's not surprising to me when I see that he blows all of his inheritance so very quickly. I mean, this guy was the life of every party. He walks into the club, and before he gets even to his first drink, people are chanting his name, right? He's the life of the party. He's paying the bill at every restaurant he takes his friends or freeloaders to. He's sleeping with a different person every night. He's living it up. Before he knows it, his credit card bounces, right? They didn't have credit cards back then, but you know that. He hits a sharp reality. The money's gone. It's all gone. I could have swore there was another 10 G's in there. What do you mean it's all gone? The well is dry. The fun is over, and just like that, those freeloader friends are gone. The brothel bouncer no longer lets him in the door. He finds himself hungry, hurting, and totally alone. 
And the story is kind of like a car accident that you just can't look away from. We read on in verse 14, it's on the screen. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in, in the whole country. So now nature is against him. And he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now in the mind of Jesus' first century Jewish listeners, there was almost nothing lower than this picture that he's painting. To work for a a non-Israelite would have been not so good, but to find out that the hired work is feeding pigs, swine, and not just feeding them, but becoming so hungry in the process that you long to eat the slop from their troughs. In a matter of no time, this son goes from being a playboy at the top of his game to being a nobody, famished, depressed, probably suicidal, we'd have to imagine, and he has no food, no friends, and no excuse for himself. This situation is of his own making. Isn't that right? And it's here that he finds himself in a place that I think many of us in this room have found ourselves in before. And one time or another, he just says, what have I done? What have I done? Verse 17, he says, when, I, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and I'm here starving to death? You see his ribs through his skin, and he said, what am I doing? So what does he do? He devises a plan. He says, I will set back, I will, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he got up, and he went to his father. Now, I think it's really important to acknowledge that this part of our story is rather tricky. And this is why coming back to the the prodigal son and sitting in it, the story of the lost sons is really important to come back and meditate upon it time and time again because we see new insights, things that maybe we assumed before that need to be challenged. Because I think as we read this, it could be pretty easy to misunderstand what's going on in this very moment of remorse, right? Because no different than in Jesus' day, all of us come to this story to this teaching with our own baggage, with our own wealth of preconceptions and our prior understandings about how repentance and forgiveness works. And so I think this part of our story has the potential to be kind of a snare to us, doesn't it? Because we read this, and due to all of those preconceived notions, we think to ourselves, aha, there's the moment of repentance. We see a man hit rock bottom. He regrets what he's done. We see phrases like, he came to his senses, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And we think to ourselves, he did it. Yep, he did it. He fulfilled the prerequisite of forgiveness. He's done his part. And now the lavishness of the Father's love is at least a conceivable outcome. But I think to do this, to this parable, is to sanitize what Jesus is trying to do. And I think there are people here this morning that need to hear this because for many of us, for, for one reason or another, we've been made to believe that repentance is that one small fig leaf that we bring to God, that one contribution before he acts graciously toward us. Is anybody hearing this this morning? Yeah, our, our works are filthy rags. Yeah, like I don't earn the love and salvation of God. It's all nice, but what I am to do, what I should do, what I ought to do before it, he does this thing called love is to repent. But the truth of the matter is is that this is not what true repentance is. It is never 
earning. It is never before the lavish love of the Father. In Romans 2, Paul says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the other way around. He goes on in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, in his description of the forgiveness and reconciliation that comes through Christ alone. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. What's it say? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And as I pondered this this week in my preparation, I was struck yet again by just how good the grace of God is. I mean, even in my most remorseful moments, even in those moments of regretting the wrong things that I've, that I've done, my motivations are all tied up in selfish ambition. My motivations are, are often all screwed up, even in those lowest of moments when it hits me that, man, I've really messed up. You see, this son, he devises a plan to go back to his father's estate, but the reality is, is that his motivation is at best mainly rooted in the fact that he's got an empty stomach. <laughs> And I'm not saying that there's no sincerity, zero genuineness to what he's saying. I'm not, I'm not trying to make that claim, but the fact of the matter is that he's depleted, he's exhausted, and he has nowhere else to turn. And so he devises a plan, he writes his speech, and he begins the long journey home. And we don't know how long this journey would have been, but what we can surmise is that it would have, it would have been utterly backbreaking. His first trip away from home would have been like a, like a, a, a skip in his step, Right? this would have been different. His already depleted body is pushed to the absolute brink as he makes his way home with no shoes, no money, no resources, barely the clothes on his back, and he gets closer to home and begins to recognize the scenery. And you have to imagine his heart begins to pound. His palms begin to sweat. His rebellious departure initially would have been the talk of the town at the time. It would have been the talk of the town. His father wasn't a nobody. They would have known about it. And now those same townspeople, you have to imagine, just kind of picture, they're gawking at the sight of this sickly, smelly waste of a man headed back to his father's home. No doubt he's recited his speech a thousand and one times in his head. He's played out every possible scenario. Will he accept my terms? Maybe he'll give me a list of things to do that I need to accomplish or change, some requirements. Or will he meet me and recount all of the shame that I brought upon the family and tell me to just get lost. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against Heaven and and you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's safe to say that this picture of a wealthy, honorable man casting aside his dignity, girding up his loins, as they say oftentimes in the text, right? And running out to his returning son has captured the hearts and minds of an untold number of people throughout history. May it do the same to you yet again this morning. May it do the same to each of us as we read this again. Don't miss this. I mean, we come to the parables of Jesus and expect him to surprise us, right? But this? Really think about this for a second. This changes everything. This isn't just good news. It's earth-shattering. If God is like this, if the kingdom of God is like this, then who can remain in the prison of, of isolation and shame and self-hatred? Who could, how could anyone not abandon their pride and accept the invitation from the Father to come and receive the fullness of his love and his presence. You see, this is what leads to repentance. The wet kisses of God on our face. Remember, the son was prepared to say more than he actually said, wasn't he? He was fully prepared to say more. What was he, gonna, he was going to offer himself as a hired worker, wasn't he? But when met with the reckless grace of the Father... He omits that proposition and in doing so takes hold of his sonship and beloved identity in the arms of the father. In response to all that he had done, the son expected to never again receive the honor of being called his father's son. He expected at best to become a hired servant and instead he's met with kisses, shoes for his feet, a robe that's like that of his father's and a ring of honor for his finger. Just the absolute best just the absolute best for his son who is at long last returned. But the father doesn't stop there, does he? He throws a party. He throws a huge, lavish, no-holds-bar kind of shindig. He kills the fattened calf. He hires musicians, right? Because the elder son later, he hears music and he comes, so there's musicians. He invites over the whole town to come and to celebrate, and you just have to picture the scene, don't you? Did he hire, like, call his tent guy, right? Like, I just imagine this big canvas tent filled with sounds of laughter and dancing and joy. There's good food. The wine is flowing. They're celebrating. And why? Why do all of this? It's not like he's getting that son's portion of the inheritance back. That's gone. Squandered forever. This party is for something so much bigger than any of that. To read verse 24, again, it says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you're here this morning and you hear these words and you think they're just too good to be true, and I'm not just like trying to single out those who are like unsaved in this room or something like that as opposed to the, I'm talking to all of us. If you're hearing these words and you think that they're just too good to be true, if you hear a story like this and you just can't help but reflect upon all of the ways you've blown it, all of the times that you've rejected the love of God in pursuit of your own way, know that your heavenly Father is the kind of Father who waits patiently, ready to shamelessly run to you and lavish upon you kisses, ready to restore you to all the dignity that his heir deserves. That is our God. Amen? And now this would be just be a really swell place for the parable to end, wouldn't it? 
This would be really great. Be pretty clean and tidy, and we've got plenty to think about, plenty to let sink in. But it's not where the parable ends. There's a second son, right? This is what kind of makes this parable uh, different from the two that come before it. There's two other parables, as I said, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But this is the, the, the only one that includes this theme of the naysayer, right? We get celebration and rejoicing and parties, but it's for this parable that Jesus reser- reserves this theme. It's encapsulated in the elder son. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called to one of the servants and he said, he asked him, what's going on? The servant said, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father did what? He went out to him. And he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. The heck is this? But when this son of yours returns, who squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him? Three times the fattened calf is talked about. And the word the is put before it, right? There's one fattened calf. I don't know if anybody's fattened calves in this room before, but I'm sure it takes a while, right? Like, what in the world? The fattened calf. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you remember back to the beginning when we read at the top of our chapter, As Jesus tells these stories to the crowd, it's not just the sinners and the tax collectors that are present, right? It's the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes. And we have to assume that as they heard this story, painting a picture of God's love that is so unlike anything they themselves would have taught the people, a love that is so shameless, so relentless in its pursuit of the lost, we have to assume their reaction would be something kind of like, doing the math, these people? (laughs) These people, these sinners who've lived their lives without any regard for the law, these sinners who up until this moment haven't professed any faithfulness, any sincerity of, of faith. I mean, you can tell them that God loves them, but not as much as us. Or at least you need to give them some sort of list of things to accomplish or change before you go around just telling them they're accepted. What are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? Now, maybe you're wondering why they'd feel such a thing, why they'd be so angry to learn that these sinners are just as loved, just as accepted as they are. One of the parables that came to mind, a different parable, was from Matthew 16. This is a parable that Jesus describes a a vineyard owner who hires workers for a day of work in, in, in his vineyard, right? And he hires a group of workers in the morning and agrees to pay them a day's wages. Then at midday, the owner goes out and hires more workers And then at 5 p.m., that's what the text says, he goes out and he hires more workers. And when it comes time to pay these workers, probably later in the evening, Jesus tells us what the owner said. And again, these parables are telling us this is what the kingdom of God is like. The owner said to his foreman, he says, 
Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and received a denarius. That's about the day's worth of wages. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. If you read that, and an uneasiness kind of comes over you, you're not alone. I think if we're honest, we kind of all sympathize with that. To the Pharisees, this sort of grace, this sort of, if you even can call it that, it's favoritism, right? It's favoritism. They've given up their whole lives to study and teach the way of the God of Israel. They've memorized Torah. They've, They've fasted and prayed and done the ceremonial cleansings. They've said to the said no to the long list of temptations from the world just to hear this, this prophet smugly tell them that God's love is equal for these scumbags? What a travesty. What an absolute farce. And this is exactly what we see in the elder son. But just as it would have been a mistake for us to look down on the actions and motivations of the younger son as if we're any better, so too it would be a mistake for us to look down on the elder son here. And if Jesus wanted to, he had every opportunity to cast the elder son as the villain, didn't he? Every opportunity to have the father in the story tell the uh, the elder son off. I mean, what an insult, right? You won't come and participate in my party. Look at this thing I've thrown. Look at all the money I've spent. And you're going to stubbornly stand out here and pout. You're going to cast judgment upon my act of forgiveness, my judgment toward my own son. Who do you think you are? But that's not what he does. It's not what he does. And I love this. Just as the father went out to his once wayward son who's returned, so too he goes out to the elder son who's lost as well in his selfish pride. The first son was selfish living. This one, he's just as lost in his selfish pride. And the father doesn't scold him He doesn't cast him off. He just reminds him gently of his beloved identity and pleads with him to recognize that this party is for him too. This party is for him too. Come and eat. Come and eat. I don't know how this parable hits you this morning. As I said, it's going to hit us all differently, right? But as I close, I want to read a a quote from a book that was a real breath of fresh air for me this week uh, by Henry Nouwen. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. If you get a chance and you want to read it, it's not like super heady or whatever. It's very like relatable. And as he reflects on the whole parable that is the story of the two lost sons, um, he he says this, and this is where we're going to close. So Geraldine and Sam, if you guys want to come back up, you can. Um, And if you just stand with me, as, we, as, we, as I read this, and we enter back into to a time of worship, um, receive these words as the good news that God intends for us to hear in this parable. No matter where you are in relation to these, these characters in this scene, Nowen says this. He says, For most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I have tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life. 
pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I've sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love me. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. In all three parables that Jesus tells in response to the question of why he eats with sinners, he puts the emphasis on God's initiative. God is the shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. God is the one who lights a lamp, sweeps out the house, and searches everywhere for her lost coin until she is found. God is the father who watches and waits for his children, runs out to meet them, embraces them, pleads with them, begs and urges them to come home. Let's pray together. Jesus, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come to you uh, this morning just humbled by the gift that is your word, the gift that is your teaching, Jesus, to us. Lord, as we just turned the, the diamond together slowly this morning and, and, and saw the wide array of colors and shapes and, and beauty, may, may we not stop there. May every single one of us in this room be willing and able to take these truths and, and let you, Holy Spirit, bury them deep in the confines of our hearts and, and, and do something so far beyond anything we could imagine when it comes to what we believe about you what we're convinced of about you, our imaginations about what you're up to in the world. Lord, would you have your way in us? And when I say have your way in us, I don't mean coercively. You never forced yourself upon us. You didn't force yourself upon your, your, the younger son. The father never forced himself upon the elder son and said, you need to do this. You need to figure this out. He didn't go to the younger son and say, as long as you can guarantee me, it'll never happen again. He just lavished the sun with kisses. And so can we receive that this morning as we ask for you to do a work in our hearts? Could that be the, the submission to your way, to your will, to your goodness? We love you and we, we know that you love us and we are thankful for that reality. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.